Stay hungry, stay foolish. So now on the Innovation Show, we welcome one of the world's most respected thinkers on the interplay of technology and society, helping a diverse mix of clients that include government agencies, NGOs, corporates, and our arts organizations to become future literate and adapt their cultures and strategies to squarely face the questions the future is asking of them. We welcome reluctant futurist Mark Stevenson, author of two best-selling books, An Optimist's Tour of the Future, and the book we're going to talk about today, We Do Things Differently. Welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you for having me, Aiden. It's great to have you on the show, man. I've been watching your TED Talks and your YouTube Talks for some time now, so it's a real pleasure to have you on the show. It'd be great before we talk about the book, if you'd give us a little bit of your background and the problems you're solving. Uh, My background, unemployable dilettante is my background. I have a degree in computing science for a long time ago, but really I wanted to be a musician, so I spent 10 years doing that. Then I got a proper job. Then I hated that, and then I sat down and thought, what do I care about, really? And I cared about cynicism and combating it because I feel that cynicism is the ultimate enemy of the future. And I also sort of found myself getting slightly annoyed about being smart and thinking about systemic problems being seen as a bit uncool, you know, that you know, if you wanted to sort of go and save the world and think about science and technology and, and just justice and compassion, those sort of things were, were seen as a little bit kind of, you know what weirdos did and i thought that that's that's surely wrong so i decided i'd dedicate the rest of my life to promoting pragmatic optimism which is you know having a really bold dream about the future and then working out how to go and get there and then um the next step was obviously to become a stand-up comedian because i wanted to learn how to communicate those ideas to to every kind of audience lots of this stuff is written by geeks for geeks and uh, that's good i'm one of the geeks myself but you know i kind of figure that we have sequence of human genome climate change is happening these things are important to you whatever your background or interest and i wanted to kind of work out how to communicate all that stuff so i spent a year on the stand-up circuit got off the book deal wrote my first book people started calling me a futurist and um, i'd never called myself that uh, and then from that book interesting people started firming up whether they're investors or universities or governments going this is interesting thinking um will you come and help us and that led to the second book which is all about systems change and uh, yeah so that's what i do now I'm, I'm i'm a fully fledged professional futurist apparently i love that man because you're you're right i i mean even i find sometimes with this show you're shining light on stuff that's really important and asking really important questions but you're seen as an outlier or a bit of a weirdo and uh, <laughs> I, I love what you did because I I saw what you did being the comedian because that was almost to work on your channel, your skill of of getting the message across. But it, there's a there's a great line you have in the book, and it was when you were talking about Dr. Erica Seiger, and it it's when she was getting death threats. And we'll talk about this in a little while. But you say it appears that those people who question the status quo can expect rough treatment from the incumbents. Yeah, well, the, the status quo is incredibly well-funded, and it's very difficult to get somebody to understand something when their salary depends on them not understanding it. So if you're coming in with something that's different, guess what? The person who's paid to do it the old way isn't going to treat you very kindly, um, and this is a problem all innovators have. I mean, there's that great quote, I think it's from Nicholas Klein, the uh, the trade unionist, said, first they laugh at you, then they ignore you, then they try to kill you, then you win. <laughs> so it's, it's you know, pretty much all the innovators that I work with or, or have written about uh, they have incredible stamina. They just keep going. Um, there's a great quote from the guy who wrote The Sopranos who struggled for years in, in Hollywood. He said, the road to success is littered with corpses, but they're all suicides. Pretty much everybody I work with has an extraordinary ability to lose, 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 lose a bit less, lose, 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 lose a bit less, but maybe start to get you know half the time winning. And then eventually 10 years later, oh, they're the new normal. Yeah, it's amazing, isn't it? And, you, and, you, and we're going to talk about the people like Samir Brachmakari and these absolutely, as you call them, successful optimists and how, how they're winning and how they're actually beating the system. One of the things before we do launch into it is some of the problems you're solving. So you say the world needs to be future literate. It'd be great to get a little bit more understanding about that. Well, future literacy, I kind of define as understanding the questions the future is asking and being really aware of them. Um, Philip K. Dick once wrote, reality is that which when you stop believing in it doesn't go away and there's a lot of people who um, don't want to believe the current reality we have but unfortunately it's not going away so we have 
governance systems that are wholly incapable of dealing with the challenges we have at the moment. So, you know, 18th century systems working at a, a pace and trying to deal with problems that is more akin to, you know, uh, the 18th century rather than the 21st. We have education systems that in many parts of the world are still stuck in the 1960s. The healthcare system is a massively expensive and labyrinthine sick care system that seems incapable of giving healthcare to the poor because there's no profit in them. Uh, our soil's being eroded um, at such a rate that we've probably got 100 harvests left if we don't change that. The energy system is massively unsustainable and expensive and um, very vulnerable to attack um, and is visiting on this climate change. And if that comes along and we get past you know, a two-degree world, then pretty much everything that the human race has achieved pretty much disappears. Um, you know, I could go on. <laughs> you know, these are some very important questions that are being asked. On top of that, you have all the technological disruption that's coming to your business, whether that's in artificial intelligence or uh, what's happening in genetics, et cetera, et cetera. And you've got all these organizations that, that simply can't think that way because they're kind of predicated and rewarded not to. Um, but as I like to say to a lot of my clients, look, Taking the future seriously is going to cost some people their jobs, and I'm sorry about that, but not taking it seriously is going to cost everybody their jobs. It's kind of your choice. Oh, I love that, man. That's that's such an important way of putting it. And Mark, you know, it'd be great to hear from you. I hadn't heard this quote before, and it's the one you open up the book with about windmills. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's an old Chinese proverb I came across, uh, and it says, when the winds of change blow, some people build walls and some people build windmills. And I guess my work is about the windmills because I kind of believe that not only are they doing important work, but they signal a shift in culture to a world where we can see a better future and they can possibly give us a bit of a roadmap and a window, a roadmap to and a window on it. And, and once you can see it, you can't unsee it. In fact, that reminds me of a point um, about, you know, how do you move people towards the future? I mean, people say to me, who's your favorite futurist? I always say Martin Luther King. Because for me, Martin Luther King was a proper futurist in that he was able to very articulately point out the injustices of the current system, but he used that same extraordinary um, skill with words that he had to paint a picture of how much better it could be. Uh, You know, I have a dream speech being his most famous example, but the speech he made just before he was assassinated, I've been to the mountaintop, very similar, and it's painting a picture of a a racially equal and a racially just world that that just looked good for everybody, and and, and it's visceral. And and if you can see that future, if you can paint that picture, it's very powerful for people to unsee it. But then, of course, you've got to go and give them something to do. And uh, one of the things I like about the people in, in my books is they kind of have seen that future, and then they've gone, right, I'll think i'll have a crack at making it yeah and, and i love that man because they're not just moaners they're actually people who see the problem and then go about doing something about it you know so it's it's like that gandhi quote be the change you, you want to see in the world yeah absolutely and, and certainly I, I feel very strongly and i think many of the people I, I work with feel that if you have seen a problem and you are in a position to do something about it because obviously some people aren't you know if you're in an, you know, an oppressive regime and you're worried for your, your life or you haven't got enough food to eat you know it's not your job to go and save the planet it's your job to get yourself safe but once you get to a certain level of privilege and you can see these problems once you can see them it really is your responsibility to do something about them whatever it is and sometimes that can be a very small thing another gandhi quote was what you do will be insignificant but it's really important that you do it so if you just change your shopping habits to buy more ethical products, that's that's one thing. If you change where you invest your pension, you know these are these are simple things. Pretty much anybody past a certain level of privilege can do, and it's getting them to understand those levers are there. Brilliant. Well, well, let's get into talking about some of the windmill builders, and uh, <laughs> be great to start with. You know, I, I and I, I felt this guy was a real hero, and they all are. But Jamie Haywood. Yeah. Well, Jamie is extraordinary character when. And he's quite quite intimidating bloke as well. So his brother, um, Stephen, got uh, ALS, which we know as motor neuron disease over here. And in America, they sometimes call it Lou Gehrig's disease. And this is, you know, basically a death sentence. Most people, once diagnosed, don't last more than four years. And the most famous um, person who had it was Stephen Hawking, who recently died. And he was a massive outlier in living as long as he did. Jamie has no medical training is a mechanical engineer, I believe, uh, decides he's going to quit his job and find a cure for ALS. So three days after his brother's diagnosed, he moves back to Boston where his family and his brother are, uh, sets up in the family basement and wants to create the world's first not-for-profit biotech medical research company. Um, And within uh, a year, I think he's raised like half a million dollars 
And then a year after that, he's raising, you know, significantly more than that, attracting some of the best researchers in the world to this new lab, this new not-for-profit, and saying we're going to find a cure for um, for ALS. Um, he fails to do that. Um, ALS is an incredibly difficult um, disease to 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 attack for all sorts of reasons. Um, but uh, and his brother dies. Um, so you'd think at this point, wouldn't you, um, that maybe kind of think well. Maybe I'll go back to being an engineer. Uh, I'll try my best. It cost him his marriage as well because he'd become so obsessed with saving his brother that he, as he, by his own admission, he wasn't a particularly good husband because uh, he was so distracted. So he, you know, he lost his marriage. He's lost his brother. He's lost, you know, you know, a whole chunk of his career. Uh, and and uh, and you know, you'd think he'd give up, and he he kind of didn't because he was sat there actually looking uh, for a new date after his divorce on on the internet, as many people do, looking at a dating site and going. Well, it suddenly strikes me. Why couldn't my brother have found somebody uh, sort of on a matching site that was like him? Somebody with the same disease, the same progression of the disease, same stage, uh, same weight, same height, same sex, all that kind of stuff. And maybe they could have helped each other sort of deal with it better. In fact, why can't patients easily find patients like them? Because it turns out that patients you know, have this massive knowledge, you know, that's not being utilised um, about, you know, how they can improve their conditions. In fact, ninety percent of healthcare is, is self care, and so he suddenly has this thought. And he thinks, "I've got all this data that we kept on Jamie. What if we could keep that data on every on patients with his condition, other conditions, and, and network them together? What would the result be?" Uh, and so he creates a basically a dating site for patients called Patients Like Me, and everybody goes, "That won't work. That's ridiculous. Patients won't want to share their data. It's too hard." Uh, and but it works and now you can go to patients like me uh, i don't know how many conditions are on there now but it's in the hundreds and there are you know there are hundreds of thousands of patients on there exchanging information helping each other out but more importantly the data that they're gathering is giving physicians a much better insight into the disease and how it affects different people in different ways patients are doing interesting things themselves and kind of going we found out a new way of combating the disease um and um, just the community of it um, has reduced things like hospital admissions by, I think, in the case of epilepsy, for instance, it reduced hospital admissions by 18% because these patients were now talking to each other and, and, and sort of improving each other's care. And in some cases, helping the, uh, people find cures that they didn't know existed for their particular type of epilepsy. And as um, Ben Hayward, who's Jamie's brother and helps from the company, said, if I had come up with a drug that reduced hospital appointments by 18% for epilepsy, I'd be a billionaire. But what they'd actually done was network patients together. And, and now drugs companies are piling into patients like me going, you know, you can help us see how our drugs are working in the real world. Um, and there's just this, it's just this amazing sort of uh, kind of innovation in healthcare, which is actually use the patient a bit more. Dave De- DeBrockhart, who's, uh, you know, one of the pioneers in this area, says the most underutilized resource in healthcare is the patient. They know the most about their their condition and the reality of it. And why can't we use that information alongside the information of the labs to create a better healthcare system with the patient at the center rather than the patient at the end being sold a pill? And it really reminded me of Wikinomics when it first came out and the the power of the crowd. This reminded me of it and I was like kind of going, it's so obvious, but the problem is it takes the incumbent out of the picture takes the reason they are doing it, which probably was originally a pure reason, but now it's about profits and it takes that out of the picture. And that's the problem. Yeah. I mean, there is a huge problem with the healthcare system in general, which uh, is that it is not there to make you better. It is there to make money. Um, It doesn't want you to stay healthy. It wants you to get ill so it can sell you a therapy. There is no money in keeping you healthy. Uh, now that's not, you know, to say that the people who are in hospitals and whatever who are helping us all get better are, are bad, but the system itself has a bunch of assumptions in it, which are about, you know, people have to get ill in order for us to get paid. And um, patients like me says actually, if we can stop people getting to hospital in the first place, or go to hospital less, or leave less medication, um, that's a really good thing for the patient. But it's not a great thing for the um, share price of a pharmaceutical company. So there are all these kind of conflicts that sit at the, the root of some of the assumptions about how, about how we do things. And, and you know, Samir Brahmachari, who we'll talk about a bit later, um, he had this moment where he'd created a test which could tell whether a patient needed a particular drug or not. They didn't have this test before. And he went to the pharmaceutical company and said, great, you know, I've now got this test that says that, you know, you can give this drug to patients 
only the patients that need it. And they said, that's, that's no good to us. We want every patient to take it, whether they need it or not, because that's how we make more money. You know, that was his kind of moment. It just went, right, I'm, I'm out of here. I'm going to go do something different. Let's talk about him because he is a serious hero. I mean, this guy is one of the most celebrated scientists in India. And here he is doing this and he's not doing it for any recompense. He's doing it to cure tuberculosis. And I could not believe you gave these stats. 4,000 people per day die from TB. Yeah. Yeah, four thousand people, and then one person per minute in India. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it's shocking, and, and and it's getting worse because dr- tuberculosis is becoming resistant resistant to the drugs that we've got. And there's been hardly any new drugs developed for tuberculosis since 1970. And the reason being is that drug companies say that tuberculosis is a disease of the poor. The poor don't have enough money to spend on drugs, therefore we can't make those drugs. Um, and their justification for that is, look, it's not our fault. This is the hard economics of it. If uh, if we don't make a profit, we don't make any drugs. We get out of business. So, you know, it's not that we're cruel or mean. It's it's that we have to keep ourselves alive so that we can produce at least some drugs. Um, the truth of the matter is that drug companies are staggeringly inefficient. And the reason that they um, they can't afford to make drugs for the poor is because their own development processes um, are are unnecessarily and willfully expensive um there are some other problems with you know how uh, approval of drugs is done and the complexity of the problems we now face but that's that those are only uh, small components of it the, the biggest component is that they haven't really innovated in the way they developed drugs since the 1960s you give this fascinating quote so five thousand to one chance of a drug making it to human trial but it's again it doesn't need to be that way it's because of the inefficiencies in the system yeah, I mean, to, just to be very clear, that's 5,001 is the number of compounds you start off with at the beginning, so p- potentially interesting chemicals that could become drugs. Only one of those will end up being uh, sort of used in a drug uh, that can be prescribed to patients. So it's a 0.02% success rate. The drugs industry has got less efficient uh, in the last 50 years by, uh, I think, it's a margin of two or three. You know, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's half as efficient or a third as efficient as it was in, in, in producing drugs, uh, in marked contrast to almost every other industry on the planet. Um, so, you know, Sam is going, like, why is it 5,000 to 1? This is ridiculous. We have to come up with a better way. And and he does. He comes up with, with a way that's looking extremely promising. It probably won't work for everything. But his argument was, look, we don't build cars the same way we built them in the 1960s. You know, what we do with cars now is we build them in a computer first. We test them in the computer. We drive them inside the computer. And if the, and of the prototypes that look interesting, we go and then build some you know, mock-ups in, in, in the workshop. Um, but we don't do that with drugs. We're still building drugs in Petri dishes. And why is that? Well, there's, there's a pretty good argument as to why that is. If you want to build uh, or simulate a car, you also have to simulate the roads and the environment and the wind and all that kind of stuff, um, which is actually, you know, it's not trivial, but but it's doable. If you want to simulate a drug, you have to simulate the bacteria you're trying to attack. And bacteria are staggeringly complex, complex pieces of kit. You know, just the, the, you know, the way the genes interact or, you know, what's going on in there is just... It's just a complexity fest. And in, in order to create a simulation of a bacteria, Samir said to me, what you'd have to do, say, for, for instance, with tuberculosis, is you'd have to go and read every single paper um, that's ever been written about tuberculosis today, of which there's something like 50,000. You'd then have to decide which bits of that research was worth anything, you know, that actually concluded something that was replicable, that was, you know, a, a real piece of knowledge. You'd have to extract that piece of knowledge or pieces of knowledge you then have to attach that to ge- the genetic code in this incredibly complex um, piece of sort of medical and um, bioinformatic engineering called called genome annotation, which is where you kind of look at the genetic code and kind of go, right, now I know that this gene begins here, ends there, under these circumstances it does that, this is when it expresses itself, this is how much it expresses itself given certain conditions or whatever. Very complex piece of work to do. Um, you have to record all of that genome annotation in a computable format in something that a computer can read then you have to be able to take all that information and create a simulation of the bacteria it's just a nightmare and uh, no one institution can do it Uh, in fact samir did try to start off a program in his institution to do that and then he quickly worked out it would take them 400 years which as you say with 4,000 people dying a day wasn't really quick enough so then 
uh, a lady called Anshu and another lady called Vinod come up with a crowdsourcing system. They say, why don't we get students to do this? We're going to get students to do this genome annotation. Um, you know, there's lots of them doing, you know, medical or, or, or chemistry degrees or um, medical chemistry degrees across India. We'll get them to do it. And everybody went, you're bloody crazy. Uh, first, you have to create the platform. I don't know how you do that. And B, have you met students? Uh, you know, A, they're all busy doing their course. So they're not going to want to do this. B, what you're asking them to do is not undergraduate level work. It's incredibly complex, hardcore science that you'd think of more, more as postgraduate work. Um, and, and students, you know, when they're not doing that, they're, they're busy trying to have sex with each other and, and, and drink. So, you know, this is never going to work. And the university sort of said, you know, no, you can't, you can't approach our students. So they approached the students anyway and uh, said, look, we, we want you to do this genotation. Uh, if you do well at it, you'll be able to have a paper co-authored with Samir, which is a great sort of thing on your CV for undergraduate. And anyway, they created this, this, this crowdsourcing system for doing the genome annotation. And they found out that indeed most students couldn't do it. It was very hard. But they got down to a core of between, I think, 100 and 200 students who were very good at it. And they had the complete information they needed the, uh, within four months in a computable format. And every piece of information had been checked five times over. So it was, you know, it was heavily peer reviewed. They then gave that information to a chap called Rohit, um, who is a computer genius. And along with Samir's help, um, he created the first uh, full simulation of tuberculosis bacteria ever. And they switched it on and um, pretty much instantly discovered that there were 11 new ways to attack tuberculosis that nobody had ever seen. Um, they very quickly found one drug that was already on the market that could be used to attack tuberculosis. And by the time I'd finished the book, they'd found another three. And they spent less than $15 million, which is somewhat different to the $2.6 billion the drugs industry says it, it, it needs to find a new drug. It's absolutely crazy. And something really dawned on me, Mark, when I was reading this, that because it's in India, it reminded me of the end speech from A Time to Kill when Matthew McConaughey in the movie gives this amazing end speech when this black girl has been raped and battered and beaten. And then he goes, and now I'd like you to picture her and now picture that she's white. And then he rests his case. And I felt this a little bit that there's this kind of Western approach to india that it's kind of like well it's you know there's overcrowding in india and uh, you know it's kind of probably self-policing in a way but then you say in the book and you don't do this purposely in the book but i was i was shocked to read in the book that you say two million americans become infected with drug resistant bacteria every year and 2300 die and i went you know what that could be the little bit of nugget that is needed for change to happen. Yeah, I mean, you know, the the antibiotic crisis we have at the moment, you know, that's coming for us quite quickly. And, you know, if we don't solve that, you know, uh, people in the West are going to start dying from previously curable diseases. Um, there's a study being done or was done in the UK about this. And the guy who ran it, I forget his name, um, but he said, you know, people are going to come gunning for the pharmaceutical industry just as they came gunning for the people in the financial industry because of this lack of you know, foresight. And uh, he should know because he was the ex-economist of Goldman Sachs, the guy that got to do it. So you know, the, the, the drugs industry has a, a fundamental misunderstanding of what its job is. Um, it is motivated by the wrong things. It's created systems that protect people from that reality. And I say that with a great deal of affection for many of the people that work in it, including some members of my family. So they're all trying to do good work. But there are some underlying assumptions about how you go about healthcare and drug development that just simply don't work anymore. Yeah, and let's call that out because I'd like to say the same. Like, there's good people in these systems, but it's the systems that are broken. Yeah. And another system that's broken is the education system. And again, you give a successful optimist there who who made a massive impact just by galvanizing a whole school and the mindset, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Be great to hear about that one. The education system is what well, in the UK in particular is still obsessed with only valuing the things that it can measure, which is, you know, that's important to a certain extent. You, you need to value all sorts of things. So they, they can measure literacy and they can measure numeracy. And it's important that those things are, uh, uh, you know, are, are well catered for and we have numerate and literate citizens. Um, but with the pace of change that's coming, uh, particularly with artificial intelligence taking, you know, a lot of middle-class jobs, um, You've got to build an economy of things that 
that the machines can't do. And that's actually a bunch of skills that are very hard to measure. Um, your ability to ask the right question. Uh, how empathetic are you? Can you work in a team? All that kind of stuff. Um, caring. Uh, you know, these are, these are things that you can't really um, measure. Um, so anyway, uh, my, mate, my, my now mate, Carl, um, head teacher, goes to a school which is considered pretty much the worst school in the UK. It had 14, teach, 14 head, masters, uh, head, head teachers sorry, in seven years. Um, kids turn up there. It's in a very rough housing estate in Lincoln. Kids turn up there at four years old, still in nappies without very much language. Um, on his first summer there, the local drug dealers burnt down half the school. So, you know, I, you know I'm not painting a picture of a nice suburban middle class you know, <laughs> place. This is a rough school, failing school in a, in a, in a tough area. Two years later, it's considered one of the best schools in the country. And the most important thing about that was he didn't change a single member of staff. So when he got there, he was told, fire all the staff because they're the problem. And he did say they were pretty much the worst teaching staff I've ever seen in my life. And two years later, they were considered some of the best teachers in the world. So that proved to him and I think to me that it's not necessarily the staff or the students that are the problem. It's the system in which they're being required to work in. So he then went and did some rather, you know, very simple systems change from within the school. I mean, one of the things he said is that um, the aspirations were right down for a start. Nobody expected to for any of those kids to go anywhere. So he and and, and the teachers never expected that their careers to go anywhere. So he said, first of all, turned around and said, right, this is going to be the best school in the country, you know, uh, within two years. Nobody laughed at them, but he said, no, I'm setting that expectation. And then he started to get the the students and the kids to work together on learning how to build their own school and getting into discussion about what education should be. It's interesting that teachers, once they get into teaching, very often don't do much learning from each other. Um, and so they kind of got away, all, got rid of all the the, um, the seats in the classrooms because kids don't learn sitting in rows, especially kids, you know, from, from tough backgrounds. You're not going to get them to sit down. So, you know, they removed all the seats in the classroom. Kids started working on projects rather than subjects where they were interested in something like space travel and then would learn all the subjects they needed, you know, whilst following this one set, this one inquiry. He did a whole bunch of stuff that's actually well proven in, in, in academic education research that works very well. Um, and two years later, it was acing all the measures that Ofsted, Ofsted wanted. The special needs kids were outperforming the national average for apparently normal kids, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The rather unfortunate caveat to this story is that um, because he was succeeding, but succeeding in a way that uh, the Ofsted and the Department of Education didn't like, um, they came gunning for him and he's left the school now because of stress, basically. And he's had to hand it over to somebody else because they just they just tried to bully him out of his out of his job. Oh man, I didn't know that. That's horrific. Like and, and this this is what we're talking about. This this bullying that happens in the system. And then you see it in companies all the time where somebody comes in full of energy, full of change, full of positive intent, and then the system beats them. Yeah, and so one of the things I'm involved with in the UK um, as a result of that is something called the Big Education Conversation, which we're going to kick off this year. And it's trying to get away from this ridiculous left versus right, progressive versus uh, traditional view of education. Can we have a proper education with all members of society about what kind of education we need? Now, we meet more business leaders in there, we want parents in there, you know, students, teachers, policymakers and we're going to be hopefully kicking it off later this year where you know all across the country we'll be having a proper chat about education because at the moment the chat is dominated by this rather divisive left versus right progressive versus traditional narrative and and so the, the ball just gets passed between those two and everybody fails particularly the students and when we're trying to build an economy post-brexit that can deal with automation that's that's stratospherically stupid yeah and, and as you say like the skills needed are you know flexibility, self critique, communication, question asking, critical thinking, and you know we don't get taught them as adults, let alone children. So, and we're not going to pick them up unless we've a, a fascination or a curiosity to read books, you know. And uh, that's the problem. And then we're seeing companies fail, and we're, we blame oh Amazon took the jobs or AI took the job, and you're kind of going yeah, but AI enables you to be the question asker, but nobody's nobody's taught how to do that. Yeah, yeah, and it's, it's interesting, isn't it? You know, 
um, I get called into organisations to help them sort of deal with innovation and creativity. Just they spent the last twenty years trying to crush innovation out of the organisation by sticking everyone in departments, asking them to be you know monitored and uh, and rewarded by a very narrow set of criteria to follow a rule book rather than follow you know a set of principles. And then they go, oh, well, what, why is it we can't handle the pace of change? It's because well, you you know our education system and your management practices have made a virtue of crushing our creativity and our curiosity out of us. Um, I have this little joke that when parents of young children come to me and say, oh, my God, my kids ask so many questions. I go, don't worry. By the time they've been to school, they will have stopped. Exactly, man. And, and you know, you said it there. They they bring you in and they've pressed the eject button on people like Carl Jarvis, who's trying to change the education system. They've made those great people who should be empowered and energized leave. Yeah. And uh, I mean, but Carl's done his job and he did an excellent job and he's, he, you know, he's lit a touch paper in all sorts of places. And there are lots of other people carrying on that work. And he's given, you know, I don't know, it's 20 years of his life to that. And he deserves a bit of a rest, quite frankly. But yeah, he was definitely bullied, um, you know, and there was talk of a legal challenge, but of course the legal challenge for a department of education is going to cost the school 300 grand, which when it's already being beaten up, is very hard for it to go for. Carl echoes what you said in the book again about Dr. Erica Seiger. And this is where you said that quote about it appears those who question the status quo can express rough treatment because she was getting death threats. <laughs> It'd be great to hear a bit about her. Well, yeah, I mean, she's an advocate of this thing called um, SRI, the system of rice intensification. And, and it's a very controversial thing. Basically, what is it? It's about promoting something called agroecology. Agroecology is really just the science of understanding how nature is so bountiful and then tweaking it a little bit. Um, to give you, you know, really good yields in your fields. Now, the moment the way we get the great yields in the fields, you know, is we do um, agribusiness. We get rid of uh, everything except one crop. Uh, we stick loads of fertilizer in. Uh, we stick pesticides in to control the, the the pests that are now heading towards that crop because there's a whole load of it of their favourite crop, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the fertilizer, you know, reduces the um, the integrity of the soil, which is why we know how we have soil erosion. Uh, those crops are very thirsty, which might now means that the water table is dropping all around the world. Agroecology, by contrast, is, is is really just saying, look, actually, if we just tweak nature a little bit, maybe we have a couple of crops in the same field at the same time. Maybe we just plant a little bit differently. Maybe we just weed a little bit differently. We can rely on the rain. Nature relies on the rain. If we know, you know, understand it a bit, but you can get the same yields. Um, and so I went off to see this working because you know it, it was a lot of controversy people saying this is ridiculous there's no way this could work so i thought well i'm going to have a look um and so i went off to northern india and had a look and you know saw the results for myself um but you know academic rice scientists for instance who spend a long time promoting particular types of rice you know that give particular yields and, and being very keen on gmo and i'm not anti-gmo by the way but it's you know they, they they had their kind of this is how we do it and there's no way you can get the same yields with a small subsistence farmer changing the way he plants his, his rice it just can't possibly work and um rather than kind of embrace that idea they said well there's nothing new and uh, there anyway and uh, and even if and, and 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 therefore it's not a thing so they kind of say it's not even a thing uh, and then when it did succeed they say well it, well, it, well you're lying <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, it was just it's just hilarious and you go and read you know senior academic scientists writing blog posts and articles where the language is that you'd expect in the playground you know i mean it's completely ridiculous but this is not uncommon i mean you know scientists are as prone to vainglorious defense of their ideology as anybody else uh, uh well, or bad scientists are i mean there are some incredible scientists out there who who um you know don't have that but scientists are assuming as everybody else, and if you challenge their cherished theory or their discovery is is shown to be not as wonderful as they think it might have been, then uh, yeah, they can go off on one. <laughs> I think some of the Mark, some of the stats that you give are fascinating, and will give people an idea of actually the problem here. Because I, I think again, these are stats and these are problems that are not talked about. And I'm talking here about the 1961 world's population was only 3 billion. In 2011, it was 7 billion and it's heading towards 10. In the same way, we have death from famine plummeting 200 fold. So we're heading towards overpopulation. If there's food not coming through and it's not healthy food and it's not, you know, nourishing food, we're facing a massive problem. Yeah. I mean, the good news is that the population growth rate is dipping off massively and, and, and it will stabilize, depending on which estimate you look at, it will stabilize between nine and a half and 11 billion people. 
Um, the problem is if we try to feed 11 billion people with the systems we're currently using, these ones that rely massively on, on fertilizer, uh, huge amounts of fresh water, huge amounts of pesticide, et cetera, um, that's all going to collapse. There's probably less than 100 harvests left. Um, so we have to go and move to a new system. you know. But the UN, the UN is saying this now. Um, the UK has just started to... Uh, put in measures to say actually uh, farmers are going to have to start improving the soil health. So that's here in the UK. So you know, these these arguments will be won. They'll have to be won because no government wants to see millions of its people starving to death. But the status quo, the people who sell the fertilizer, you know, their lobbyists are going to be working like crazy because they have the viewpoint that you know short term profit is better than the survival of the species, uh, which is why we should all fuck them. That segues nicely with the work of Peter Dearman and his his refrigeration solution. And I couldn't believe this, man. Again, these are stats that people are just unaware of. Half of the world's food is thrown out because of refrigeration problems. Yeah, well, there's, it's between it's between 30% and 50%, depending on where you are in the world. And it's thrown out not after you've bought it. It's thrown out before you have. So particularly in hot countries, uh, if you harvest, say, a mango, and it's, you know, 20 miles to market, you know, on that 20-mile journey, the sun is basically, you know, trying to kill the mango. You know, it's rotting, it's wilting, it's whatever. So in the West, we have, you know, cold chains. In fact, pretty much, I think it's some ridiculous statistic, I can't quite remember, but I think 70% of every piece of food that you eat has at some point been through a cooling process or a refrigeration process. 16% of electricity in the UK is spent on cooling. So there's this, you know, this is a pillar of modern society. And it doesn't just work for food. Obviously, it works for, you know, uh, medicines as well and, 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 and tissues and all that kind of stuff. So it's really, really important for the, for the medical community, this, this cold chain. Um, in the developing economies, in the global south, there's a lot less of this. Um, and if you don't have a refrigerator, then guess what? You're going to lose a whole load of your food. The great irony is that if you want to go and build a refrigeration system, at the moment, you power that by fossil fuels. And guess what that does? Well, that heats up the planet. So you're trying to cool down your food by heating up the planet. Uh, Peter Dearman invents an engine that runs on liquid air. Um, actually, liquid air engines have been around for 100 years, but he, he does a little neat trick with a can of antifreeze, which I'll let people read about because it's, you know, it's quite crazy, um, that boosts the, the efficiency of the engine. But liquid air, of course, is at minus 195 degrees centigrade. So the engine now not only gives you power, but it gives you refrigeration for free. And it's a non-toxic fuel that you can make anywhere in the world because compressing air is not is not a difficult thing to do. Liquidizing air is not a difficult thing to do. It's as I say, completely non-toxic. And right now in the UK, Sainsbury's are extending a trial to replace the diesel engines on the back of their trucks that run the refrigerators to use this new thing called the Demon engine. So if it's good enough for Sainsbury's, it's going to be for everybody else. Brilliant. And again, food being a huge problem and, and one that you know is not being dealt with. It's much like the farm industry. We're dealing with how do we manage this, the present and the past rather than look to the future. And you talk about Detroit. And again, like you did with the chapter about the education system and the rundown school, you paint a real dystopian view of Detroit. I felt actually like I felt actually dirty. I felt like it was like that movie Eight Millimeter, and I was walking around. You did a really nice job of that, man. And uh, again, brilliant work being done in Detroit. Yeah, I mean, you know, so I, uh, in the book, I, I get to Detroit, and it is like, okay, this is this is chunky. <laughs> this, is, this is this is this is not a. Uh, this is not a friendly neighborhood, you know, and I was standing in one of the better neighborhoods, I have to say. Um, the city, you know, totally hollowed out by racism and the retreat of the, the automa automotive industry. Um, I think it's a city built for 1.7 billion people or something like that, and, and there's less than half of that in there. So the whole city is falling around people, and they're bulldozing a lot of it. Um, highest crime rates of anywhere in, in, in the US, I think. Uh, massive deprivation, huge rates of childhood obesity, poverty, etc. So city pretty much broken. Um, but then this amazing group of people decide that they're going to reclaim the city. There's all these lots that are falling apart and they say, let's turn them into farms. Let's grow our food within the city uh, limits and let's do this together. And it's a theme that comes out time and time and time and time again in the book is when people get together to do something, um, they start to reclaim their sense of community, their sense of respect for one another, their sense of attachment to their city. And now as a result of that, after they've been doing it for you know um, a good sort of 15 years, 
Detroit is now a food mecca. The best restaurants are opening up in Detroit because the, the produce is so fresh. It's got an aim to become what they call a food sovereign city, whereby it will grow the majority of all its fruit and veg within the city walls. And it's this huge story of rejuvenation from within something that actually does look like, you know, something from a from a um, from a, a Transformers movie, a kind of a post-apocalyptic <laughs> wasteland. And yet, I had the, some of the best that I've ever tasted in my life, and I met some of the most connected communities I've ever seen, right in the middle of this this disastrous place. Um, so, you know, you can rebuild a whole city, connect people back to themselves, to each other, and, and, and to the place they live. And one of the things I come across so much in my work is that people divided by politics are very soon brought together by projects. You can have left-wingers and right-wingers arguing, you know, till they're blue in the face in the pub, but you give them a school to build or a bridge to make or a decision to make about where the street lighting has to go, and you guess what? Their politics disappears and they get on fine. They might have a few disagreements, but their disagreements that are productive rather than destructive, and that's, that's a big hope, I think, for the future, that we can, we can bring partisan communities back together through projects rather than politics. Yeah, and, and you say this in politics. I mean, you talk about the guys in Brazil. So I'm going to try and pronounce this: Maria Inez Nanya yeah. and Fernando Pimentel, and yeah. the work they're doing. I thought this was fascinating, man, because it's actually giving the power back to the citizen. Yeah, I mean, this has been going on for a while now. Um, this concept of participatory budgeting. Um, so what that is 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 the city turns around to its citizens and goes, "How would you like us to spend your taxes?" Um, not all the taxes, uh, but depending on the city, you know, can be up to 50%. And um, it turns out that the people know better because they're dealing with the day-to-day life of living in the city. And it turns out the poorest people know best because they're dealing with the worst deprivations of the city. Um, and it's, it's an expensive thing to do in terms of the process because <clears throat> getting you know, you know a bunch of citizens together to talk about taxes is, is, is obviously more expensive than having three guys in a room in suits decided. But the results are incredible. Turns out if you do participatory budgeting for a year or two, nothing much changes. People are pretty cynical about it at the beginning. They don't really believe the government is interested in them. And quite often, participatory budgeting projects fail uh, early on in the first two or three years because of that. Um, but if you keep it going for 10 or 15 years, the results are extraordinary. And the, the World Bank's done these really interesting longitudinal studies that compare like with like cities with participatory budgeting versus similar cities without. And they conclude that on every possible measure, things get better. Um, poverty declines, child mortality declines, healthcare improves. Uh, citizens re-engage with the government because now they, they, they don't lack trust in the government. They start to feel you know, a pride in their public citizens, uh, sorry, in their, in their public officials, which is great for you know, running, running a city efficiently. Corruption goes down. The price of doing public projects goes down. They become better managed. And uh, if you're a politician who is a, a person who is promoting participatory government you know so you're actually giving power to the people rather than trying to have it over them guess what you get a 10 point upswing in the polls so it even makes the impossible possible it makes politicians popular this comes back to you talk about the power of community the power of the crowd the power of peer-to-peer and we see this in energy again another place being threatened the status quo is threatened energy and communities and self-generated energy and it'd be great to hear a little bit about that and the big problem which is this energy trilemma Yes, well, and the energy trilemma is, uh, some, is a, something invented by the World Energy Council, and it basically says um, you can't have energy that is both cheap, um, that everybody has access to, and is environmentally sustainable at the same time. Those three things are kind of mutually incompatible, and it's our job to try and handle that. Uh, so it's basically a kind of an admission of failure. It's basically saying we can't have the energy system we need. Um, turns out you can. Uh, you just can't have it um, using the system we've got at the moment. Uh, this is one of the great optimistic stories of our time is this move to renewables. Now, regardless of the environmental um, argument for renewables, even if you don't care about climate change, if you think climate change is a huge fraud, you should still be backing renewables for a couple of reasons. Um, the first is that renewables are generally going to be generally owned by us. They're owned by communities, they're owned by small farmers, community groups, schools, or whatever. Um, and those groups don't necessarily want to take a profit so much. They're not so interested. They're just interested in keeping money flowing within the local economy. The moment if you pay for your energy, guess what? It goes out to one of the big six, and they give it to their shareholders. Um, locally generated stuff uh, stays within the economy, uh, and that's very good, uh, and it's cheaper. Um, and the second thing is if you're worried about national security, 
um, a distributed energy system is a lot harder to attack than a centralised one. So if we build Hinkley C, for instance, which is a ridiculous thing to do in the UK for various reasons, um, that's a massive terrorist target and a very, very dangerous thing to hit. Um, you can't take out every solar and wind power plant you know, on, in a distributed economy. Um, there are towns in the middle of Texas right now moving over to renewables because they've worked out it's cheaper. That, that now these are Trump voters. It's a town called Georgetown, sixty thousand Trump voters. None of them believe in climate change. Moving over to renewables because it's cheaper, and they're right next to the oil fields. And there's a third point about renewables, which is good for the world. And this was sort of brought home to me by Dale Ross, who's the mayor of Georgetown. He said the great thing about renewables is that the price stays the same. He says one of the problems with the world at the moment is the oil price keeps fluctuating. So if you're an investor or a government or you know a a politician or in a town mayor, and you're trying to invest long term in things, that's quite difficult to do because you're never quite sure where the oil market's going to go and what that's going to do to to everything. Because you know, pretty much the cost of everything is is in some way related to the cost of energy. He says, now I've moved over to renewables, I know what my electricity bill is going to be twenty years from now. And I know what price I'm going to be paying. So when it comes to doing big municipal projects, when it comes to me investing in hospitals and roads and schools, I can do that with a lot more confidence. He said, even if renewables were more expensive, that stability gives me, you know, a much better platform to govern on than the current oil-based system. So that, you know, and, and renewables are now getting so cheap. I mean, the fossil fuel industry is dead. It just doesn't know it. But going back to that point about the status quo, I was in with a, an investment house yesterday and they were talking about their fossil fuel portfolio and i'm going are you crazy a all those fossil fuel companies are overvalued because the reserves that they're claiming as their um their assets can't be burnt and um, if we want the species to survive b they're all too expensive to extract because renewables are going to be so cheap within two or three years that there's, there's no business there and yet you're still holding on to them and trying to sell them to you know your clients as if they're a good thing you know regardless of the environmental impact that's just dumb management but of course they're oil and gas investors that's all they can see it's amazing and you know you talk about the case of austria i love this man the ex-basketball player reinhard koch and mayor peter vadaz in austria i thought this was another great hero idea yeah i mean this just back in 1997 this town was on its knees being next to the iron curtain for 50 years the economy was dead i think 27 percent, 26 percent unemployment Lowest wage rates of anywhere in Austria. Anybody who did have a job was actually probably commuting to Vienna 100 miles away. Town was dying. Reinhard and Peter say, what, what can we do? We can't keep the schools open. We can't keep the health centre open. Where can we save money? So they looked at, they did an audit of what everybody was spending money on. The biggest bill for the town, for both the municipal government and the, and the citizens, was, was energy, of which they worked out they were spending something like 6 million euro a year in a town of 4,000 people. So they said, right, let's take control of our energy system. That we won't have, we won't take a profit, um, and we can plough that money back into the local economy. And this is back in 1997, by the way. So back then, that was just seen as the most heretical, crazy, stupid idea. And that's the reason I went there because they've been doing renewables for 20 years, and therefore they've made every mistake you can make, and they've learned every lesson you can learn so far. I tell the story of how they went about turning the town over to a, a community-owned renewables energy system. Um, the people that tried to stop them. Uh, who nearly succeeded in a couple of occasions, uh, but now the town uh, is is booming. So it's got full employment. It's growing. They were able to start investing in the local economy because they had all this sort of revenue staying within the within the local area. Um, to the extent that you know, one of the things they invested in was a local basketball court, as Reinhard was was an ex basketball player, and the local team went on to win the national league. Uh, <laughs> you know, so this town has gone from a complete economic basket case to a boom town. And one of the reasons it's a boom town is because if you're a business and you want to set up somewhere in Austria, you'll go and set up in Goosing because the energy price there is half what it would be in the neighbouring town. So it just it's just a win, 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 win. That's brilliant because it, it reminded me of the school of bringing this broken school and actually not changing people. And he didn't, you know, people, he didn't bring in new people into the town. He just changed a certain dynamic and all of this came out of it. All this good came out of it. But I thought it was really interesting that even though they create the fuel from waste gas, they still have to use the grid to distribute it. So there's Mm. still an intermediary there. And I was thinking about the world of blockchain and how that can take out the system in the future. Yeah, well, this is is the big thing that that not many people are aware of at the moment, but it's going to change everything. 
is that in various places, and I've seen numerous examples of this now, and I talk about one in the book, uh, of an energy internet where you are able to layer software on top of the existing grid that opens up that set of pipes and wires to anybody who wants to attach in much the same way that the internet opened up sort of the information markets to anybody with a browser. Um, And uh, the great thing about that is, as we found out with the internet, you know, if you increase the number of people who can play in that space, the cost of the information went down and the amount of information went up. And the same is going to happen to energy and the cost of the energy will go down and the amount of energy will go up. Um, The existing incumbents won't like this, but they will lose that argument in the end because governments will turn around and say, you are now throttling the economy. Germany is already doing this, which means they don't really have an electricity bill and their economy is thriving. So we are going to move over to an energy internet system or the economy is going to die. Sorry, big six, but you have to step aside or get on board with this. Also, this is great news for national security because, for instance, Vladimir Putin's entire leverage uh, in the world is based on oil and gas exports. That's where all the Russian money is coming from. And 65% of their exports are oil and gas. In a renewables world, that kind of behavior, he can't afford anymore. Uh, and, that, and that's another good thing. Um, so, you know, it's just, yeah, win, win, win. Energy internet, it's going to be it's going to be huge. You do talk about as well, we'll give him a tip of the hat to James Johnson and his open utility project, project which is basically an Uber for peer-to-peer energy sharing. Yeah, yeah, it's, it is. He's, he's built he's built one of the sets of software for, for engines. There are other people competing, so he's, he's got a tough time ahead of him. He would want to build this software. And there are other examples of it working um, in various countries. But yeah, I mean, he went and built basically the internet software for the energy system. And he's partnered with Good Energy, which is our biggest renewable provider in the UK. And now Good Energy offer an energy internet to all of their business customers. And they're loving it. So, you know, this stuff works. So when people say, one of the things I love about my work is that people go, oh, that'll never work. And then I turn around and go, uh, James has done it. you can't can't say it doesn't work you can tell me that it was hard to do you can tell me it was tough you can tell me that other people aren't going to like him you can't tell me it's impossible because um, here's somebody who's done it and a lot of the reason i do the 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 writing of the books and hopefully the tv series i'm about to negotiate is to make the the impossible possible because people go oh well if, if x has done it then it's not impossible uh and when things stop being impossible you know, all sorts of things become possible. Yeah, and it reminded me of, you know, the the late, great Roger Bannister and the Roger Bannister effect. Once he got that record, the four-minute mile, everybody started beating it then. And it's, it's a little bit like that, this book, and I thought it really needed to be celebrated. So, Mark, it's brilliant to see that this is feasible and that, yes, you're going to get lots of knockbacks, you're going to be disappointed, you're going to have setbacks, but if you're driven and the community works together, this is possible and you've shone a light on so many of these great success stories brilliant book and as you say the world needs more pragmatic disruptive innovators thank you for being one mark stevenson author of the award-winning we do things differently thank you for joining us thank you Dan, on the show i really enjoyed it 